Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert who's sick and tired of women in our line being stereotyped as black widows or killer nurses, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and flawed and petty little dream, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Collectors, issue 14 from the Sandman comic book series. Collectors was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. Xylenol did the colors and Todd Klein lettered. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Art Young. Covers by Dave McKean. It seemed like the late autumn wind blew them in that night, spinning and dizzying from the four corners of the world. Time to wake up. So, Elisa, here we are. We've just finished issue 14 of the Sandman series, Collectors. How do you feel about this issue? I I find this issue and 24 Hours the most viscerally uncomfortable of mm-hmm. the Sandman chapters. Um, it skews dark in the way that Jamie Delano's Hellblazer skewed psychologically and thematically mm-hmm. really, really dark. And... Even the Bradbury-esque poetry at the beginning Mm -hmm. is discomforting. Now, I don't know what this is called anymore. If there's a term, somebody will tell me. But there's Mm -hmm. a, a, in in prose, you can have a third-person narrative, and it's more or less objective. And then it will get colored by Mm -hmm. the thoughts and impressions of characters, one or more characters as it's getting close to them. And I think Mm -hmm. when the narrative voice describes a bitch wind, I think Mm -hmm. that we are uncomfortably close to these serial killers who are coming to this convention. And Mm -hmm. so we are, we are, we are being flavored with their sickness, even Mm -hmm. in the poetry, but it's, it's an important story. And I think it it compares the fandoms of comics and science fiction with the fandoms of true crime. And mm-hmm. that's an interesting thing, especially as we're recording this, uh, a lot of the US and I think the world has been transfixed by a, a true crime story happening in real time about this young blonde woman who uh, has apparently been been killed while hiking across mm-hmm. country and I can't help but feel all these resonances with this story that was written uh, 30 years ago yeah because there is that real darkness and we're definitely going to get into that in detail like this reflection of actual human darkness and what the value of that might be um, this issue is, is one of the ones that I struggle with, kind of similar to 24 Hours. Um, you know, on the one hand, with the exception of one element that I had real trouble with, I think it's a really, really good issue. And it does some lovely work with the power of personal narrative and the idea of what happens when we are unable to kind of face and deal with our own darkness. It hits on themes and ideas that are incredibly crunchy. And we're gonna have a really interesting discussion about all that stuff. I'm really looking forward to that. But I can't really say that I enjoyed reading it. It was kind of a difficult, um, you know, experience for me. And again, because I'm very sensitive to these things and they do tend to to throw me out of a story. Um, but overall, like it's one of these things where I'm like, there's so much good stuff here that I really respect, but I can't say I enjoy. 
know, which, okay, fair enough, right? Not everything should be enjoyed. Some things should be difficult and challenging, but let's go ahead and get into our summary now. The serial convention gets underway with con organizer Nimrod desperately searching for the missing guest of honor, the family man. When the slickly cool Corinthian appears, Nimrod asks him to become the new keynote speaker. While Rose and Gilbert follow police orders and keep to their rooms, Gilbert entertains and warns Rose with a grim fairy tale. The collectors, as the serial conventioneers are called, attend panels, including one called Make It Pay. Check out the movie schedule. The collector, based on John Fowles' debut novel, is a favorite and begin to suspect that one of the participants, the boogeyman, is not legit. As in all cons, there is an unexpected meeting in the elevator when a desperately uncomfortable Gilbert and oblivious Rose run into the Corinthian. Realizing the danger, Gilbert writes a name on a piece of paper and hands it to Rose, telling her to call him if things get bad. Things quickly do get bad for the bogus boogeyman, who turns out to be a serial killer wannabe as well as the editor and writer of Chaste magazine. While the Corinthian and two of his human imitators mete out punishment to the editor, Rose leaves the safety of her room for the hotel disco. Spotted by Funland, the large, outwardly affable con volunteer, Rose returns to her room only to find Gilbert gone. A knock on the door follows, and Funland, claiming a message from Grandma and sporting a wolf image taped to his shirt, barges into the room and assaults Rose. Rose finds the paper Gilbert gave her and calls on Morpheus, who appears and rescues her by giving Funland a benign dream of acceptance. The Dream King's next move is to attend the Corinthian speech, and even among a crowd of cold killers, Morpheus stands out. When the Corinthian challenges Morpheus, Dream sets him right, calling him a disappointment, and then uncreates him, leaving only a tiny skull with teeth for eyes. Morpheus then takes away the dreamlike illusion that all the serial killers have harbored, leaving them self-aware and tortured. Rose and Gilbert reunite, with Jed safe in Gilbert's arms, rescued from the trunk of the Corinthian's car. But all is not well, for Gilbert tells Rose that there will be consequences for calling Morpheus. Now he tells her. Okay, Elisa. Oh my God. So much to talk about this week. So, so much. But let's go ahead and start with Dave McKean's unbelievably creepy cover that has a face on it that has teeth in the eye sockets. And it's, it's so, I mean, when I say creepy, like I'm not insulting. I hope everybody knows this. Like I'm not insulting, but it is like, it's supposed to be creepy and it achieves that. It does. Um, you know, I think you've described it really well. I I love that there's this strangely sedate blue fabric uh, mm-hmm. all around in use on the cover. And I think it evokes for me some of the convention hotel vibe. The other. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I noticed, Dave's partner, Claire, is just lovely. They have known each other forever. She's a wonderful musician and artist in her own right. Mm -hmm. She was the model uh, for many of the pieces. There's one later where we'll see a a Mm -hmm. woman's body wearing a bird head, and that's definitely Claire. 
I am strongly suspecting that that is Claire Mm -hmm. as the Corinthian, which just amuses me because Claire is just oh my god, a really warm and 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 wonderful Bohemian person, and and the idea that Mm -hmm. she's kind of masquerading as the Corinthian on this cover is is uh, kind of takes some of the creepiness away from me. Oh, I, I imagine that it would. I mean, then it would become almost funny if you know that face and know that the person who owns that face is delightful. You know, I mean, that would definitely throw in a different context. Um, I love all of that, that kind of convention feel to it. But there's also like this, this ripped map of Texas. Um, there's a piece of it above the image of the Corinthian. Um, and it looks almost like it's it's crumpled a little bit at the bottom to almost form a wrist. It looks kind of like a hand to me. And then at the bottom, there's the pieces of the map that are ripped. One of them looks like a K and the other one might be an O, which makes me think of like knocked out or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if that was intentional or just that because because Dave McKean's covers require a deep reading, right? You, you're not going to glance at a Dave McKean cover and absorb everything that's in there. Like it requires looking in. And sometimes I wonder if I'm like maybe seeing things that were not intended because I'm just like reading it so deeply. Um, And I don't know if that means anything, but it's just, it's so, it's so neat. And the idea too, that like every little thing you can kind of like draw a little meaning from in a Dave McKean cover, it makes them a, a real adventure to start off an issue with. Absolutely. And Dave has this immense range where, you know, he can can draw and paint very realistically. Mm-hmm. And he can also have wonderfully stylized uh, illustrative work. He, he plays with um, more abstract and, and mm-hmm. you know, uses photographs. So there, there's just a lot of different there's, there's this very wide range. It sometimes feels like we're dealing with a team of artists that all happen to be Dave mm-hmm. McKean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really neat because it is kind of a mixed, it is very mixed media. You know, it is like there's a whole bunch of different things that sort of contribute to this overall effect, which I find so fascinating and so interesting. And my book of just the covers itself is, I, I love going through that. I mean, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. I'm looking back at the ones we've already done because I really want every cover to be a surprise when we come to it every week. Um, But, you know, talking about the art, uh, there is a lot of kind of chaos you know, scratched into this story with the way that the art is presented. You're right. I think we see a real departure in the artwork in in this Mm -hmm. issue. We see a lot of breaking of panel borders. So sometimes we've got splash pages, which is to say uh, basically a whole page that's, that's just one big image, one big panel. Or we have these collaged, fractured images that leave the order of the panel borders behind. Mm-hmm. And I think they serve a dual purpose here. On the one hand, we're g- getting some of this feeling of chaos and threat because things are not being contained in their borders. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've got this convention of serial killers and, and this evil seeping out. And on the other hand, there are places where this, you know, um, less panel ordered artwork is giving us a chance to introspect to go deeply into a character and and 
often we are getting deep into the psyche of a person who is monstrous and deeply disturbing. We're getting mm-hmm. into people's secret worlds. So there, there are, there are, I think there are interesting effects. We we get this also, of course, with the the um, Red Riding Hood fairy tale. We're yeah. going into the wolfish images, and mm-hmm. I know that in feel. I think that I know Alan Moore was, I believe Neil Gaiman was as well, big fans mm-hmm. of the writer Angela Carter, who was mm-hmm. known for going into classic fairy tales like like Little Red Riding Hood and Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. and writing them with this subversive, um, feminist kind of tell the tale but tell it slant kind of uh, aspect. Yeah. And and I was getting that vibe from both both the content and the art very much reflecting that. Yeah, I definitely think so. And it's interesting too because with the um because the panels represent order, right? You know, this is how we read it. These are the boxes within which we are telling this part of the story. But one of the things that I really loved about this is that even the panels themselves, there's this one page that we have um where we are spending time with the only collector that I recall in this, who had regret, who was looking for help, right? And so we saw like the, we had the image of his face as he's talking about all of these things that he's done, right? And we have the order, like this incredible grid order of these panels, like, and he cannot fit his entire self into any one of those spaces. And he's breaking into these little parts, you know, like literally compartmentalized. And I really thought that that was such an interesting, you know, visual way of representing somebody who is doing things that he doesn't want to do, that he doesn't entirely understand. And that even when he's sitting there and talking with people who will not judge him for it because they all think it's awesome, he is still connected to enough of his humanity that he is, he says, I needed help. And he couldn't get help. And as he's telling this story with all of this regret and all of this remorse, um, he's not being heard. He's not being understood. And there is that compartmentalization that I think that happens in people, you know. Um, And I just thought it was so incredibly interesting. Um, So I really loved that particular page. It it really is interesting. I, You know, one of the ways that panels are often described is as units of time. Um, Mm -hmm. you can also think of them as emotional beats that Mm -hmm. if, you know, you, you have off, I mean, but there's different ways that they, they work. They do represent the passage of time. They can represent, Mm -hmm. um, a shift in emotional polarity, you know, uh, screenplay writers talk about separating a scene into beats and there've been different Mm -hmm. definitions of beats and panels play into all of that, but. I think we are both feeling that there's a way that it's not time that's breaking down here. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. it is the ability to sequence and order thoughts and feelings and keep them keep them, you know, in a a, a rational sequence. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating and the way that that the art can differ, you know, even with the the same artist in the same story and the same issue, we see those art styles kind of differing from 
you know, collector to collector, whoever's POV we're in, which I really find adds such an element of, of under, of, of understanding of experience of, of kind of living within this darkness, which is a lot of what this issue is about is that darkness within all of us that sometimes we're afraid to look at. Uh, but before we get too deeply into that, I wanted to talk about like conventions and fandoms and the role of that as a metaphor in this story. You have some amazing notes on this. So I can't wait to hear you talk about this. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, it, when I visited this material for the first time in the book, Sandman, the King of Dreams, I wrote that mm -hmm. this chapter is very much a further development of Morpheus's developing consciousness of the bond between himself and humankind. And mm -hmm. because we have covered this as it originally came out right after Hob, I think we can see this as part of that continuing mm -hmm. story of Morpheus recognizing that his relationship with humankind has been too distant, mm -hmm. that he needs to, to get closer. Like a lot of Neil's stories, The Collectors, I think, is also a commentary on the bond between author and audience. Um, mm -hmm. Morpheus becomes more aware of the consequences of cutting himself off from the people who are collaborating in the enterprise with you. So in, in this case, mm -hmm. he's the king of dreams, and he can't cut himself off from humans who are the dreamers. Well, I guess mm -hmm. some of the dreamers, there are also non-human <laughs> dreamers. And, mm -hmm. but as a metaphor, it's also about authors and celebrities and their mm -hmm. audience. Uh, the Corinthian is, in this sense, he is the dark mirror that he was supposed to be because he's so enamored of his own star status. He mm -hmm. has forgotten his true purpose was to be a dark mirror. And mm -hmm. that's to say, you know, he Sandman later calls him the masterpiece, the masterpiece nightmare. And yeah. he was meant to evoke recognition and self-awareness in people. And instead, he infected humans with his joy of death and, you know, with their uh, preoccupation with his surface glamour. And he permitted his fans to continue to see themselves as misunderstood and as victims, even as they were victimizing others. Mm -hmm. So I think there's there's a lot going on. And that aspect of this issue is what really resonates with me. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I am my, I'm the daughter of a science fiction writer and a, a fan and a comic book person. So I've been going to conventions for a very long time. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I see this as a bit of a high wire act because on the one hand, he's um, this is definitely a bit of a satire about conventions, mm -hmm. science fiction and comics conventions and the conventions of conventions. But <laughs> I think it doesn't insult the fans. And that's really something mm -hmm. you, you don't want to do. You don't want to feel that, um, you know, that the writer is, is doing what I think there was a, a an ancient mm -hmm. SNL where William Shatner comes on and says to some Star Trek and, you know, convention, just get out of here, get a life. It was just a TV series. <laughs> Go home. And, you know, you don't want to do that because mm -hmm. there is so much magic to conventions. And that said, there's mm -hmm. also a lot of weirdness 
Um, you know, on the <laughs> one hand, in the, especially in the pre-internet age, those of us who had esoteric interests, um, mm -hmm. meaning comics not killing people, uh, this yeah. you know was your one <laughs> chance maybe to go and mingle uh -huh. and talk mm -hmm. to other people. Yeah. And I think there is a. a a weird wry sweetness to the fact that, you know, you've got all of these panels. I love the one called mm -hmm. Make It Pay because who hasn't gone to a convention <laughs> of, you know, uh, whether it's science fiction or comics or romance writers, you know, something like, please, mm -hmm. can I can I make some money off of this instead of just spending everything? Yes. <laughs> I love the convention. Like, I love it, especially the nerding out over the minutiae of everything that they do. Um, I did not feel for a minute like this was an insult to conventions. I felt like conventions are one of the most human things that we do where we get all excited over something, you know, and everybody gets together who knows like everything that's ever happened in Buffy, you know, like that kind of thing, you know. Um, and my favorite thing in the world is taking something I love and breaking it down and analyzing every little piece of it to death, uh, clearly, because I've, I've made a career out of that. Um, and I love being around people who also have enthusiasm for those things. Now, murdering people isn't one of those things, but I can appreciate like the enthusiasm and the nerdiness and the way that they're diving deep into it. And I thought that that was interesting because we have this, um, this kind of sort of push-pull between darkness and humanity when really darkness is part of humanity. Um, and, uh, and so showing this enthusiasm and nerdiness at the heart of this story, which is also about, you know, murder and misogyny and evil and just trauma. It's so... I, I kind of love that, um, that kind of odd uh, cognitive dissonance between these two things that actually are, are kind of mixing really well together. Um, but one of the things that I really loved about this, and the first thing that caught my attention in this issue, uh, are the bookends, right? Because we open and we close with the same thing. And the thing that I love about bookends is that they reflect upon each other. You know, you open a story with one thing, you end it with another thing, and the ways in which those things reflect each other and are different and then gives you the meaning you know like it, it points to what this means on a map right um and so for me when you have a bookend like that um it's done so beautifully and i love this language it seemed like the late autumn wind blew them in that night spinning and dizzying from the four corners of the world it was a bitch wind knife sharp and cutting and it blew bad and cold it seemed like the bitter fall wind brought them there perhaps it did um, I love that. And then we move into the winter part at the end of it with the, like with the same panel at the top, you know, um, and it says the first wind of winter blew from the North and it had ice and rime on its breath. It was dirty and sharp and it cut like a razor. It scattered them into the night, the quiet ones with death in their eyes. It seemed like the darkness swallowed them. Perhaps it did. That's those are both abridged versions of all of the language that's in there. Get the comic. It's worth it. Read it. It's amazing. Um, I love this language. Um, I love the way it reflects, you know, on on what has changed from the beginning to the end. Um, and I, I love your question of whose voice is this, right? I think uh, maybe what you were talking about is omniscient third versus deep POV third. Um, I, I, or maybe you were talking about something else. I don't know. Um, 
but uh, but the the POV that we're in during this, I was certain was the fake boogeyman. Like I was certain it was that guy, except that we get more of that narration after he is well dead, you know? Um, so I'm not really sure, you know, where this narration comes from, but it does seem like this narration um, is, is part of that darkness as well. This narration has been infected with that darkness, the way that these people were infected you know, with, with whatever it was the Corinthian brought to the table on this. Um, and I love that in the beginning, all of this is interrupted by one of the collectors singing Lydia, the tattooed lady. Um, and there is nothing like a song that is supposed to be somewhat off color for the time, for the time, this was a highly risque little piece of music, you know, uh, like in the, I don't know, the twenties or the thirties, whenever Lydia, the tattooed lady was a thing, you know, um, and to, to have something that in another context would have been so shocking to look so ironically innocent because it's not even close to shocking in comparison to what these dudes are up to. Um, all of that I thought was just so beautifully constructed. Absolutely. I, I just looked up because sometimes we're talking and I will think yeah. of something that I didn't put in the, <laughs> the script and I'll just start talking mm -hmm. and then I'll think, wait, is that right? And I get I get insecure. <laughs> so what I was trying to say before was indirect discourse or free indirect speech. It is the technique where um, let's see, I'm reading from Wikipedia, the technique of presenting a character's voice partly mediated by the voice of the author. I always think of it mm. as when the narrative third person mm -hmm. voice is colored by the thoughts and dial of, you know, style Just of picking speaking. picking up the flavors. Yes, of yeah. the characters. Mm -hmm. And in this, usually it's one character, but here I feel mm -hmm. that we are flavored by all of the evil of all of these serial killers. I also think there are places where I can feel a little bit of perhaps influence. I don't know if that's the mm -hmm. right word, but I I felt something very Ray Bradbury in the poetry mm -hmm. of this. And there is a Bradbury book that I, I particularly love called The Halloween Tree that I don't know if anyone reads anymore. <laughs> I don't know if anyone reads anymore. But um, if, if, you know, he has, Bradbury was known for writing horror that was absolutely poetic and evocative. And uh, I, I feel that there is something of the flavor of, of Bradbury mm -hmm. in this. So, um, and people should read The Halloween Tree because it's going to be that time soon. I will put it on my list. I will put it on my list of things to read. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I love too about the language for, for the writers out there, um, I love that the the dough is not overworked in this language. It is very easy when you're going for a poetic kind of phrasing to overwork the dough, you know? Um, these are extremely simple words. It is simple language that gets across such, it is incredibly evocative. It was a bitch wind, which carries, of course, the misogyny from this environment, right? Knife sharp and cutting, and it blew bad and cold. 
Those are, it's such simple words, but when you put them all together, it really does create such an incredible um, like vision and, and a feel. It brings you into that environment. Um, and, you know, it was dirty and sharp and it cut like a razor. Um, I, I love all of that stuff. And again, like, you know, simple language used deliberately, used without necessarily defaulting to whatever the word is that you would think might be in that place. I would never think of bitch wind, right? But there's something about that combination that really does evoke this sense of character and place and feeling and environment. Um, so for writers out there, I would study like that particular, the use of language in that opening and in the closing, that it is poetic, but it is not overworked. You know, when John D. McDonald is a, a an old mystery writer whom I really like, and the, he mm-hmm. said something about writing at one point that he, you know, in his hard boiledish Florida way, he said, "I <laughs> something like, you know, I want a guy that has a question that's moral as well as, you know, whatever plot mm-hmm. driven, and I want, you know." whatever he wanted. And then he said, and I want a bit of poetry. And I, I always imagine <laughs> him, you know, in his macho, I want a bit of, but uh-huh. I, I think it's, it's a nice thing. Sometimes before I write, mm-hmm. when I'm trying to um, wake that muscle up a little, mm-hmm. I will read some poetry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's something that I, I tend to be much more like simple in my language when I write. Um, and this is one of the things that I don't go into very often into that poetic space, because it's one of those things that when you do it bad, like, oh, it's bad. You know, when it's bad, poetry is the most cringy thing. And I always feel very, very nervous about it. But when I see simple language used very specifically, you know, used with real intent. Um, and the idea that that um, it, those like simple words brought together can really bring out a strong sense without going into this like flowery kind of stuff that I tend to not enjoy as much. Um, it makes me feel like it's something I could dip my toe into a little bit more when I write, but we'll see. Dip your we'll toe into that bitch wind. <laughs> I will. I will. Thank you very much. Um, One of the other things that I saw here that just kind of caught me thinking was I really loved the uh, retelling of the fairy tale, you know, of, of Little Red Riding Hood. And of course, you know, in the beginning, these stories were a lot darker. Little Red Riding Hood just fucking died. Like that was it. You know, there was blood on the walls and nobody was coming to save nobody. Like this was all darkness in the beginning because these were cautionary tales. You know, these were things, the stories that were told with the intent of keeping your kids afraid and alive. You know, that was a big thing. Um, so we're retelling this um, this cautionary tale to, you know, uh, Gilbert is telling this story to Rose with the intent of uh, frightening her to keep her safe. I'm not, you know, like, I'm not really sure what exactly his intent was there. Um, but as I'm listening to it, I'm like, you know, cautionary tales are for the victims. Why don't we have cautionary tales that caution the perpetrators? You know, like, I get why we don't, because we don't see the perpetrators as human. We can't speak to them. We can't communicate with them. They are just monsters, right? The wolf is not a human. The wolf is a monster, you know? Um, And putting control on the victims kind of 
leads us to this, to where we get this victim blaming kind of mindset. Like, you know, you shouldn't have been walking in the woods. Look at what you were wearing. Why did you drink so much? Right. We have the cat calling this girl a slut because she's eating the food and wine that was left out or what she believes is food and wine that was left out for her um, by what she believes is her grandmother. And yet we've got that really hard moment where the cat is like, you slut, you know, and clearly the the girl is not understanding what the cat has said. But we have that moment in there. Um, So that kind of gives us like a victim blame scenario, instead of holding the perpetrators accountable, and a lot of people out there you're going to be doing because patriarchy and yes of course you know uh all those arguments are absolutely here to be made that definitely has something to do with it but in this particular story where we are talking about the human and the inhuman and the gulf between those two states which is not as wide necessarily as we would like to believe that it is um and how uncomfortable we become when we mix the two and the collectors are here at a convention and there's nothing more human than nerding out at a convention and then they're bringing all of this darkness into that incredibly human nerdy space so what i started thinking is that if we treat the wolf like we can speak to him like there's a way to communicate once we can communicate with someone we're in a shared space So we either have to humanize him or dehumanize ourselves in order to get close to him. And so, you know, I'm asking these questions, like, do we write cautionary tales for the victim? Not necessarily to victim blame, but because the perpetrators in the context of this issue, the collectors are just unreachable. Does it feel like treating the perpetrators like people who can be reached means that we have to then see that darkness is human? It made me think of, of Nietzsche. You know, you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks back into you. Um, They're creepier if we allow them to be human, Um, which is why the page that's all broken up into a grid with that guy who was having the regret, like he's the only one who's asking for help, who wants to stop, who's struggling. Um, And he brings us into this uncomfortable space where the monster is human And then, you know, going back to Gilbert telling this story to Rose, he says, listen to the wind, right? We open with the wind, we close with the wind. Here we are again. Listen to the to the bitch. He doesn't say that, but to the bitch wind, right? It brings bad things, Rose Walker. I think it will be best if we keep to our rooms, right? Um, And then, of course, we see Funland when he attacks Rose. He's wearing a T-shirt that has a wolf on it. He says, take off your dress. You won't need it anymore. Repeating the wolf's phrasing from Gilbert's story. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm... I'm having all of these questions about, and, and that's kind of what I love about this issue. Like I said, I don't, I don't enjoy reading this, but there's so many interesting things here. Is this relationship between ourselves, our humanity, our darkness, and, you know, and was the Corinthian created to, to help us psychologically bridge that gap? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, I, it's all questions, no answers for me on this. Well, I have two thoughts, you know, when, when mm-hmm. you were talking about that. One was about Rose in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about this before we began the podcast. Yeah. But in my 20s, I definitely identified with Rose. Now that I have a daughter in her 20s, uh, mm-hmm. I I see her and, you know, um, and, and the young women who get victimized, you mm-hmm. know, I, I look at them more with that fear that a mother has. And mm-hmm. it it may even be more horrifying to me with that yeah. frame on it. The mm-hmm. other 
association that I had with you, with your talking about the wolf, is how the narrative that we are in danger from the wolf, mm-hmm. it, it just tied in for me with this, you know, oh gosh, in the news right now, there have been increasing uh, rem- hunting uh, of wolves in Wyoming, mm-hmm. in I, I'm trying to remember which states where they've really done some intense culling and hunting of wolves. They did it last February during the season when wolves are denning. And mm-hmm. um, and they blew past their own limits. So they, they went way over the amount they were supposed to. And they're still, the states are approving more and more culling. And mm-hmm. When you see yourself as a victim, sometimes you authorize yourself to do whatever, you know, mm-hmm. everything is now acceptable because you have considered yourself the victim. So these people who say, you know, and I, I understand that for some of them it's livelihoods and they have their mm-hmm. reasons. But for me, I'm looking at the ways in which it's it's never a good thing to not examine your own prejudice, even the ancient human mm-hmm. prejudice against the wolf. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, when we talk about the role of, of being the victim, you know, um, that we get into the narratives that a lot of these um, that a lot of these uh, collectors were getting themselves into that they you know, Corinthian is really, really into this identity story. You know, he when he's talking to the boogeyman, he says, it isn't the sex, it isn't the power, it isn't the cruelty. We are soldiers of darkness, right? Um, it is the darkness. They serve the darkness. He is about the darkness. And of course, a, a person with no eyes, right? Um, he, he eats the, the, the organ that, that sees light, right? You know, I mean, that's what he does. He says, we don't do it to make a living. We don't do it for revenge. We don't kill anonymously. We don't carry guns into burger joints. We don't murder for hire or for governments. We are entrepreneurs. We are gladiators. We are soldiers of fortune. We are swashbucklers and heroes and kings of the night, right? This identity story, you know, and all of these collectors who are seeing themselves in their stories as victims that they are going out and killing because that's the right thing to do because women are bitches, right? There's so much misogyny uh, reflected in all of these characters. Um, But he is none of these things. He's creating all of these stories, but he is none of these things. He is not human. You know, he is a nightmare. Um, And I found this whole thing, Sandman comes in, he sits and listens to the Corinthian talking, then stands up and challenges him and tells him what he is. You are a nightmare created to be the darkness and the fear of darkness in every human heart, a black mirror made to reflect everything about itself that humanity will not confront. Um, and interestingly, this is just an aside, the creator of the TV show Black Mirror said that the black mirror he was referring to was the reflection of ourselves in our phones when they're turned off. And it feels like such an apt metaphor for something that did not exist when Neil wrote this. Uh, people turn their phones off? 
<laughs> I, apparently, <laughs> uh, when you first bring it up to like the reflection in the in the in the screen, I, yeah, I just um, I just think it's funny because these days yeah. nobody turns their phones off. It's you know perhaps that's, right. We need that dark mirror, perhaps, but we don't see it because we're constantly being distracted by. Right. And what's going on in mirror, mirror on the wall? Yeah. Who is the fairest of them all? Right. Isn't there something in the idea of the the phone and the technology as being a window to somewhere else? And yet we we use it so much to reflect us back at ourselves. I don't know. That might be bullshit. I honestly don't know. I hadn't really thought about that. But I think it's so interesting and it feels such an apt metaphor. Um, and then, you know, it turns out that that all of these killers were kind of created by the Corinthian, that the Corinthian for the last 40 years has been running around, putting dark whispers into all of their souls and making them into murderers. Well, there there is this interesting uh, phenomenon that there was a, a kind of burst of uh no i i don't know if it's a burst but their their serial killers Mm -hmm. began to really proliferate and i think from the 50s through the 70s or the 80s there seemed to be more and more serial killers and so i i think this idea that they're that that the idea of serial killing became more infectious is something that i've i've only recently become aware of i so i don't know if that's true that there were you know, yeah. maybe there always were more serial killers and they simply were not known about as much. But I suspect that there is a um, some, some way in which the social media and our interconnectedness, mm-hmm. uh, well, in, in the 50s, it was before social media, but television yeah. and mass media was still making mm-hmm. people more aware. And so nightmares can be infectious. Nightmares can be infectious. Ideas can be contagious. Um, it's very, it's, it's just such an interesting idea that that darkness, you know, he escaped and put that darkness out there into the world, you know. Um, and then, of course, dreams punishment for all of these collectors um, is that he takes their personal narratives away. Uh, and and that speaks to the power of story like nothing else, right? For everything that they've done, for all the horror that they've unleashed, the the just punishment for this is my judgment on you, that you shall know at all times and forever exactly what you are, and you shall know just how little that means, right? We've had all of this convention, and I feel like it's for this moment. All of the stuff that felt like it was making fun of conventions and, you know, make it pay and all this kind of stuff. They're all narratives. They're all narratives that these people are getting involved in. The narrative of who they are, of what they are, that, you know, statistically we have no more mental illness among us than the general population. Like all of these narratives. And then after murder and mayhem and horrible, horrible things, the punishment they get is that they get to know exactly what they are. And oh my God, that packed a wallop for me. So much of a wallop. And there's so much wish fulfillment in that because, well, you know, Batman and Wonder Woman, they may wallop. Well, Wonder Woman doesn't wallop. But, you know, there's that satisfaction (laughs) of a superhero beating up the bad guy. And Mm -hmm. in cop shows, there's the satisfaction of taking a bad guy down and sending him or her to Mm -hmm. jail. But what we really want 
we want the criminal to have self-awareness and be tormented by the guilt of what they've done. That is the real thing that we want. And it is the sweet spot between punishment and the hope of a rehabilitation. And and so it's a real, it is so satisfying, even though, you know, once again, we are in the arena of assault and sexual assault. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you had some thoughts about that because it's, It is uncomfortable. It is um, not the area where, you know, I'm not saying that literature should, and and I do think this is literature. I don't think literature should necessarily shy away from difficult difficult subjects. But this Mm -hmm. this is uncomfortable to read, uh, challenging. It is. Yeah, it's really difficult. Um, I mean, we're dealing with a lot in this issue. As I was reading it, I was like, is this longer than the other issues? It feels like because there's so much. And I'll, you know, I'll admit this issue is a bit overwhelming. Um, You know, we have Rose as a victim again, saved by a man again. Um, and, and the threat of rape again being something that is used to kind of, we didn't need to have that, right? Um, and one of the things that I talk about, you know, when I, when I teach people about stories is that you want to earn what you use. There are a lot of things that we do in our storytelling culturally, um, that are done kind of casually, without payment, right? Without narrative payment for them, you know? Um, And so they're exciting and it's, (gasps) and it's a gasp and it's all of this stuff, you know? Um, But the thing is that there's a real cost for that. Like um, fiction helps us walk through the things that we don't want to look at, right? The black mirror, you know? And this is a a story that's actually talking a lot about that, right? Um, That our stories are where we go to process all of these things. And when you think about dreams, Cain and Abel, right? They're the the keepers of the stories, right? You know, um, and dream is the story king, right? You know, these are dreams are stories. We process the things that happen to us through metaphor and story because we cannot handle the actual reality of them. Um, And I I would say like, this is the thing that I have, uh, probably this is my biggest quibble with this issue, um, is that what happens to Rose is disturbing and not narratively earned. And I think that I am okay. Like all the misogyny that you've got in this issue, absolutely. Like you're talking about darkness, human darkness and how that presents itself. In no way is any of this misogyny being celebrated. It is not being shown as like, this is the way that men are men and it's okay. There's no boys will be boys bullshit in here. So with the misogyny, 100%. I absolutely I rubber stamp all of that. That is something that we need as a culture to examine. And this is examined in this issue in a way that it should be, you know. Um, but the attack on Rose is, uh, first of all, like the second uh, threat of sexual assault that we've had with her. We had her in the alley when Gilbert originally saved her. Um, and so here we have, she's another, she's just a woman kind of being moved around on a board until a man can come in and be the hero. And the sexual assault 
what happens with sexual assault is that there is sexual assault in the moment and and it's often looked at as once you're safe then you should just be over it because this is over but you're not safe again after that like it takes a lot of work to come back from the experience of sexual assault um, in all of these ways. And when in our narratives we have somebody who is sexually assaulted and we don't walk through the process of healing that trauma with that character, um, what it does is it tends to minimize that. It tends to add to this idea that like, well, Rose just got up and got over it. Like I should be able to get up and get over it. Um, but the fact is that like what's involved in that kind of violation of your safety and your autonomy is, is huge. Survivors have so much work to do to resolve that trauma. And even then you're never going to be a person that that didn't happen to. And so for me, when I come across these stories and, and it's not narratively paid for, we don't, work through. We don't pay for that excitement and that moment of thrill and adventure and trauma. Um, it it can sometimes to me just be like I, I went through this, you know, triggering um, issue, this triggering story without getting the payoff of it being resolved and her actually working through all of that. So we've done this with Rose now, like not once and but twice um, and that's something that that can be disturbing. And again, like, um, this isn't to like shame or wag my finger. It's just like as writers and, and a lot of people who listen to me are writers because that's that's how I got into this was in talking about writing and storytelling and how powerful storytelling is that as we move forward. You know, it's something to keep in mind I, as we talk about these things. Yeah. And I suspect that when it comes to the TV series, we're going to see Rose having more of an arc. This may be partially mm -hmm. the limitations of space and and just, you know, how uh, we've all have a greater mm -hmm. awareness. There is something about Rose that... Uh, how can I put this? She does seem to be uh, a, a a concentrator of people's lust, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. is something that we will find out more about. Yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit more. Um, and and there are, you know, there's so much interesting stuff that's going to happen in this arc as we move through the rest of Dollhouse, because although I wasn't supposed to read ahead, I did. Um, so I know how it ends. And now I'm, I'm a little bit spoiled. Um, but one of the other things that I kind of wanted to to get into here is um, I was thinking about how, you know, Dream deliberately created the Corinthian for a purpose, right? And as I'm reading this, I'm like, what is the purpose of the nightmare? You know, um, and I have been recently, uh, for <laughs> reasons associated with my trauma, reading up on sociopaths and psychopaths um, and understanding who these people are and how they work. And um, and one of the discoveries that I made while reading um, this material is that it's like one in 25 people is a sociopath or a psychopath. They're not all murderers. They're not all collectors. You know, a, a lot of them make excellent surgeons. They can go in and operate on someone with a clear mind because they don't have empathy and they're not freaked out about what happens. You know, if I have to tell their mom that they're, you know, this person did or the wife that this person didn't make it through, you know. Um, and I'm sure that 
that also historically some of these people made excellent warriors, you know, especially when war was this one on one with swords and clubs, you know, um, it would require somebody who like didn't mind killing people to protect the community, you know. So maybe that there is a, a reason, you know, like a, a, a evolutionary reason why we have one in 25 people, which is a lot without empathy, you know? Um, and it sucks, yes, when you come up against a sociopath in your personal life, maybe there's a reason why they exist. Maybe we need them. Maybe Dream knew that, you know? And created the Corinthian to be the thing that allowed us to to deal with our darkness, you know? Um, and, and again, like I go back to Nietzsche, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. And so Nietzsche's warning us against the abyss, right? Warning us against taking a good look at the Corinthian, warning us against that dream. It seems like... Dream is saying, no, 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 you need to wrestle with this darkness. You know, do we need to look into the abyss? What do you think? I think that that is one of the functions of horror. The fascination mm -hmm. right. of horror and the purpose of horror is to allow us to glimpse the monster and the monster in us and to mm -hmm. and to conquer the monster and maybe sometimes uh -huh. to experience what it is to be conquered by the monster and then wake up out of it and wake up out of it right oh my god it's just it's such and that's the thing about this issue like i know i said i don't enjoy it i really enjoy talking about it though god there's so much like it, there's so and so much packed in this is like so narratively dense you know, as far as like, if you're looking at narrative as a delivery mechanism for meaning, right? This one is narratively dense. It has got so much packed in there. And I love, I mean, all of most of the stuff that I've talked about in this um, episode has just been questions, like just questions, just things you're making me think about questions you're making me ask, which I freaking love. I think it's awesome. Um, but the biggest question I have, though, uh, this week is murderer grapefruit. Like, oh, my God. So Rose wakes up in the morning, knocks on Gilbert's thing, says I could really murder a grapefruit. Uh, gee, the thing I'm craving most in the world is a grapefruit. Grapefruit is not a fruit. It is self-hatred that you peel. No one, no one wakes up in the morning and wants a grapefruit. I, I'm sorry. I disagree. <laughs> I, I will admit my favorite are the pink grapefruit. But uh -huh. I think maybe this might be like an Ashkenazi Jewish thing. We like our sour uh -huh. foods, you know. What uh -huh. grapefruit and some borscht? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, then I take it back. I take it back entirely. Just, except that I was like, why? Why does she not wake up wanting a chocolate eclair? Why does she want to murder a grapefruit? Well, all I can say is I would almost <laughs> rather have an eyeball than a maraschino cherry, which I think are oh, the work of the goodness. devil. Oh, my goodness. Well, interesting. <laughs> when I come down there for visit in a couple of weeks, we're going to have to... <laughs> Go to a place that has all variety and stuff. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I'm actually, I don't, I don't care about that that much. It's just kind of, it was funny. It just struck me as really funny. Um, all right. So 
Uh, Elisa, you got some cool stuff in Lucien's library. And for those of you who are spoiler sensitive, Lucien's library does talk about Easter eggs and, and discussions that may include some spoilers. So if you're sensitive to that, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. Tell me what you got. Well, first of all, am I allowed to say gross things? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, so last episode, we talked uh-huh. about the kneeling medieval women and the effluvia mm-hmm. that sometimes hit mm-hmm. the floor. Uh, and I couldn't remember the name of it. Well, I got a message from Neil. And he said, Sutikins. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, yes. And now I remembered that there was a time when I wanted to have two cats, one named Sudikin and one named Merkin. And uh, anyway, so Sudikins, and then he he gave me, he, he footnoted this. He footnoted it. I love it. With the Dictionary of Disgusting Facts, 1986, Maggie Noach and uh-huh. Alan Williams. And uh, they describe the Sutikins as being soot, dirt, sweat, smegma, and vaginal and menstrual discharge. <laughs> and you know, Sutikins is so, it's such a cute word. It sounds almost like a term of endearment. That's why the cat name. I guess the next yes. time I. So cute. <laughs> and, and you know what a merkin is, right? I do know what a Merkin is. Excellent. Do you want to if, describe it for no, our audience if, or make them go look it up themselves? Go look it up. I'm sure Mad Hetty has one. I'm sure. And, it, I'm sure and it's gray does. and, you know, has a hat. <laughs> when you guys look up Merkin, for those of you who don't know, you'll understand why that's so funny. <laughs> Tell us about the family man. The family man. I don't have a lot to mm-hmm. say, except he was a serial killer from Jamie Delano's Hellblazer run. So this it's a little in joke, I think, mm-hmm. between, uh, you know, Neil and, and Jamie that, you know, everyone's everyone's <laughs> saying, like, where's the family man? He's our guest of honor. He's our big serial killer. Right. And that's what was going mm-hmm. on in the Hellblazer <laughs> at the time. He was too busy. He was too busy in his own comic. He didn't have time for the collectors. <laughs> and the last little thing is I did notice um, mm-hmm. th- there there was a change in the original, uh, the serial killer who is somewhat introspective, um, mm-hmm. that the target, I'm just going to say here that the target changes. So in the Audible yeah. version and in the original comic, there is a difference. And mm-hmm. I don't know. This is not a conversation I've had. I am assuming that this is a self-edit. Um, mm-hmm. And it may have, I don't know if there was a conversation or if this was completely mm-hmm. internal. But I wanted to say something. I was going for a walk with my friend, Carol Goodman, who's a wonderful writer and a professor. And she talked mm-hmm. about how people often misunderstand cancel culture and there's this mm-hmm. there can be this reaction against you know well now you're not allowed to say anything but that in in most cases um she feels that it has to do with an ongoing need to examine do terms mean what they used to mean do they still mm-hmm. mean that how and and it is about as i said earlier i think that ongoing um 
examination of the bond between the author and the reader, between the um, professor mm-hmm. and the students. And so ideally, we are examining and re-examining. And I was thinking how, you know, Dr. Seuss as a writer went back and changed some of his stories. And then there was this big brouhaha mm-hmm. later that um, some of the Dr. Seuss books were no longer being um, published mm-hmm. because they contained what are, are now understood to be insensitive stereotypes. And I just feel like if Dr. Seuss himself had lived long enough, he would continue to change and edit and revise mm-hmm. because I, he was, I think, one of those writers who was very attuned to the issues of racism. So I yeah. just, sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a, a long um along no i mean yeah i think that it's also important like in the same way that i was talking about you know from my perspective seeing rose be assaulted um was something that kind of threw me out of it you know um trans women transgender people um have to deal with a great deal of increased danger um and the uh the violence and just being afraid of walking out the house because you don't know, you know, who's going to decide that they have an issue with who you are as a person. And that a lot of times in order to be genuine, there is an element of safety that that is is um, sacrificed for that. And that's a that's a sacrifice nobody should ever have to make, you know. Um, and so to see something like that, reflected um you know in this story i can see being upsetting um and and you know we've had stuff like that silence of the lambs had some infamous um uh kind of delving into that territory so i think that what it comes down to is that we all of us need to understand that when we do something in a story it is okay to show darkness it is okay to show terrible things happening it's just that we have to be aware of the fact that we are if we're creating something that is that may be somebody's lived experience who is reading this then we just have to think about that you know and and not glamorize i think that i i feel like this is the episode in which i've had the most trouble finishing my own sentences but maybe it is because this is challenging material. But it is hard. I, I think that maybe the lesson of the Corinthian is we don't want to inadvertently glamorize the thing yeah. which we are meant to be examining and subverting. Yes, and disgusted by. And that's the thing. Like there's a load of misogyny in this issue. I don't have an issue with any of it. I think it's all okay because we're not doing boys will be boys. We're not saying it's okay. I think that the page, you know, that we're referring to here um, could be like really, really upsetting, Um, you know, and I'm not in any way going to say that, you know, I can speak to how the misogyny and how the sexual assault affects me. I cannot speak for how this might affect somebody with, with that life experience, but I can say that I think that we are all moving forward trying to think about these things and again like everything we do in fiction we've got to look at our own darkness we can't be afraid to look at the truth and the reality of what people have to live with but when we do that we want to do it with some sensitivity and earning that narrative 
um, as as well as we can. So um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's, again, something to think about as we move forward. You can't undo what's been done. We've all written, I go back, I listened to um, an audiobook of mine and cringed at things that I had written. Um, and it was never my intention. It was just something I didn't know at that point. I couldn't, you know, so like, I don't hold this against anybody who created this material. I think the fact that this material exists gives us a space to talk about a lot of these things, you know, and that is a good thing for us to move forward and evolve as a society i think but moving forward you know we've we need to have these discussions so that as we create you know things and art um we do it with a consciousness and an understanding and empathy for the people who have to live through the things that we talk about absolutely absolutely so do you have a favorite part I do. I love the page where Dream confronts the Corinthian. Um, the panels are almost all these primary colors. It's all like yellow, red, blue. Um, and and it balances out. So we have one like stark black and white panel with no borders on one corner. And then we've got kind of like a little double panel down in the other. And a lot of the pages within um, within this series, the, the pages are divided three by four. So we've got, you know, this like the, the, the page that I kept talking about that I also love which is probably my second favorite is the one that that cut through the grid that cut through the guy who had the remorse and then here we've got this uh slap down you know from dream on the corinthian um and i just i love the language in the way that dream talks to him and tells him what he is um but i also love the way it is visually represented in this very simple elemental primary color kind of language that says, here we are, we're not messing with anything. We're at the basic elements of color. And we're using those to tell this story that is about the basic elements of our humanity and our darkness. And I just thought that was so cool. Look at you getting so savvy with the comics. I know, I didn't know that I could do this. I'm learning so much. Like I said at the beginning, I'm not typically a visual reader. And working with these comics has made me think so much more visually. I'm having so much fun with it. I love it. So what about you? What's your favorite page? Well, as seems to be the case, so often we gravitate to the same bits. I just yeah. love the mm -hmm. badass, high status, you know, here is this glamorous serial killer to end all serial killers and Morpheus is just sitting there saying you disappoint me <laughs> and, and then he gives him a little parental lecture like I mm -hmm. I expected better from you what parent hasn't <laughs> you know I just thought you were yeah. gonna do more and mm -hmm. um so that I really loved I also loved the page um I think I may be confusing parts and pages now but <laughs> That's where I'm at this week. Eh, whatever. Yeah. But there is a page where Nimrod calls Funland fun. And we mm -hmm. go into this weird moment where he kind of turns red and rips down the middle. And then, mm -hmm. you know, in the real, we're back to the real, like, oh, it's all right. You know, just, you know, but we, mm -hmm. we got this glimpse of his monster and his rage. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. so I love that. No, it's really, really good stuff. What's your favorite part? So I did really enjoy the moment of tenderness. There's a, a panel. I think there's no borders to that panel, but Morpheus is holding mm -hmm. Rose in a very yeah. old-fashioned swoony uh, pose. And 
it is a very romantic moment. It is a kind moment. I have to admit, even when I first read this, I don't think I ever saw as much romance as a possibility as perhaps was meant to Mm -hmm. be evoked. I just didn't see Rose as quite strong enough to spark Mm -hmm. Morpheus's romantic interest. And we will see him mix up with, uh, I guess, some, some other women in, in the future mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and even get his heart stomped a little. But uh, yeah, no, he deserves it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I do I do like this moment. I'm a romance writer and reader as well as, you know, mm-hmm. other other things. And I do love those moments when we can see a romantic mm-hmm. and possibly tinged with sexual side to a person. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I come from romance writing, too. That's how we met. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I always kind of look for those moments. But, yeah, with Rose and, and Dream, I don't buy it because there's just not enough time they don't know each other you know um but it's it's interesting to see kind of how that evolves um for me i love the bookends i love the opening and closing reflecting each other a story's meaning comes from what changes and when what a bookend does is package up that meaning for you in a really beautiful way and then deliver it with a bow and be like look at the beginning and look at the end see what's changed and that's going to point out to you what the meaning is here um and i just i i love it it's one of my favorite devices and it's so much fun to see that. And I think I think Neil, I'm getting the sense that he kind of likes the bookends too, because I've seen it a couple of times. I've seen it a couple of times, even more subtly done in, in art that reflects, you know, from beginning to end. Um, but I really, really love that. It's one of my favorite things. So it was really fun. All right, if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, there are earlier versions that are even worse. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or murder a grapefruit, I guess. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack You're something of a legend among collectors. We will be back next time with Into the Night, issue 15 of the Sandman series. Until then, if I hear another of your theological paradoxes, I'll scream. (laughs) 